Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mike Sakopoulos, who serves as our organization's general counsel. And we're now going to dive straight into the facts of today's story. And this is a doctor who saw a woman with a worker's compensation complaint of back pain. Her descriptions of symptoms at the time seemed dramatic, but the neurological examination was benign and her MR as well as x-rays were unremarkable. So a significant disconnect between um, her complaints, her subjective complaints and objective findings. Several other spine surgeons came to the same conclusion. So she referred herself to a spinal surgeon with a reputation for having, and I'm quoting here, an exceedingly low threshold for offering surgery. I'm going to guess that's a euphemism for the surgeon was doing surgery on anyone that hit the door. So anyway, the patient underwent a lumbar discectomy. Um, she complained to the insurance company, the workers' comp carrier, that the operating surgeon never saw her after surgery, and her pain symptoms were, surprisingly, even worse after the operation. So the initial doctor was asked to reevaluate her. He came to the same conclusion, namely her symptoms were much more dramatic than the objective neurologic findings, and a post-operative MR scan showed nothing other than surgical changes. There was no evidence of an infection. She then asked this doctor to assume her care, which he politely refused, referring her back to the operating surgeon. So a month later, this evaluating doctor received a registered letter stating that the patient had to have a second operation because his examination was so, phys <laughs> so physically brutal, it triggered a re-herniation. I can't even imagine what, <laughs> what type of examination that was. But anyway, um, her initial MR sh showed a minimal disc herniation in the first place, even though she had surgery after that. And the second MR scan done in the post-operative period again, showed no evidence of a herniation. The apparent witness to the brutality of the uh, initial doctor's examination was the patient's husband. Um, the good news is that this doctor had a female staff member present during the supposedly brutal examination. Um, and this examination consist consisted a little more of an interview and a basic neurologic examination. The doctor had never met the patient's husband, this husband had never set foot in the office and had not accompanied her to any examination. So this would be a mild way of stating that the husband was lying. So the insurer almost immediately helped dispose of the case. The doctor got a letter from the attorney later apologizing that he had not realized how unreliable his now former client was. And had he known that, he never would have initiated uh, the, the uh, action. Um, but that was not the end of it. This patient who initiated a pre-lawsuit um, later requested that the initial doctor see her again and assume care for her chronic uh, disabling back pain. 
for some unknown reason, he uh, declined to take the bait. Mike, you're up. What do you think of this? Wow. Um, pretty brazen uh, patience here, right? I mean, it looks like they're, they're out trolling for litigation wherever they can, whether it's uh, from their, their work comp uh, coverage or mm-hmm. MedMal. Um, we have someone here uh, hoping to dig into some insurance proceeds uh, wherever they may be found. And it, you really have to, the theory that the physical exam of the patient uh, was so brutal as to uh, trigger injury, I have to say is, is pretty unique. I've not seen that before, and I have some images of medieval medicine <laughs> being practiced with maces and stretching racks and so forth. Okay, so obviously that didn't happen. Let's talk for a moment about the chaperone, mm. uh, right? Because here we had, and I don't know if chaperone's the exact right term for this, because uh, you have the... Uh, Usually, when it's a patient of a different gender than the provider, you have a third person in the room. But we could imagine that the husband could have actually been there, right? And would we have needed an independent person to come in if the spouse of the patient was present? And I think many, many providers would say, no, that's really unnecessary. But this is a good, good example of why it's always nice to have a third party in the in the room viewing what's going on would you agree with that yeah in this particular case having a third party probably saved him because otherwise um, you can well imagine a he said she said I cannot tell you the number of times um, we have received a call from a doctor who examined um, a patient of the opposite sex um, and it was a benign examination, meaning that it was examination of the arm or the knee or, um, or the face or the scalp. And sometime later, long after the visit has been forgotten, and in fact, an unremar- unremarkable uh, interaction, uh, the doctor will receive some type of notice either from the patient, a family member, or an attorney that the doctor was entirely inappropriate. Inappropriate is in... Um, is in um, italics here because it means different things. Um, but it typically means that this is going to escalate. And the best way to prevent this type of escalation is to think about it preemptively upfront with a chaperone or a witness, whatever you want to call it. Um, it doesn't matter whether the patient was in a gown and uh, unclothed or whether they were in their street clothes and um, you know, fully clothed that if it's just one doctor and a patient of the opposite sex in an exam room, although it is not common, it does happen that every so often some type of, um, some part of the examination can be misinterpreted. So here's a case in point. Um, There was a a dentist who was um, performing a root canal and the middle of uh, performing the procedure, apparently his elbow accidentally touched the patient's breast. So think about this for a minute. You, we've all been in the dentist chair and let's say tight space. Um, you can well imagine how an elbow would brush up against a uh, chest or a breast, etc. But I, I am absolutely convinced that the, this particular dentist was focused on nothing than, other than addressing the root canal. I don't think this was uh, a secondary attempt to get some type of uh, sexual satisfaction. Yet, 
Um, later that day or the following day, the patient sent a, um, a nasty note to the doctor alleging the exact opposite, stating that that elbow had intentionally touched the breast and that she intended to escalate. So this is um, certainly very worrisome. Now, what was helpful in this case and in other cases like it is that he wasn't, these, these weren't the only two people in the room. There was also a dental technician uh, who was in there that witnessed the whole thing that allowed that uh, evolving case to be disposed of pretty rapidly. But more frequently, it's just two people in a closed exam room and um, it turns into he said, she said. So just think about this. Pay attention up front to some of the protocols related to examination. And it, it cuts both ways. It's just not, it's not just male physicians examining female patients. It's also female patients examining um, male patients. Is that correct, Mike? Much more rare, but yes, it certainly has, certainly has happened. We've had to deal with those cases at, at medical justice. So you're, you're absolutely right about that. This also seems to me to be a good case to talk about why you want to note in the chart who all is physically present at the time of the exam, right? So to the extent that we have uh, family members um, in, the, in the exam room, uh, it should be noted in the chart. You don't have to give a big dissertation about how they acted or whatnot, but just simply noting who was there, I think, is, is good practice um, and could be helpful down the road. The other point that's interesting about this case is that initially when um, the patient presented, there was a strong disconnect between subjective symptoms and objective signs. And I would call that a red flag. Now, I don't necessarily, I mean, it, it could very well be that um, her pain threshold is, um, is low, but more broadly, the concept of a red flag is useful in terms of figuring out how much you need to document. So I'm still a pretty big fan of documenting as much as possible to help save you down the road when memories are short. But any case where there's a red flag up front requires additional documentation up front. So just pay attention. It's not just you, the physician, being aware of the red flag. You should pay attention to anything your staff says about a particular patient, meaning that your staff may say, this, I'm worried about this patient because they're behaving in an unusual way. Uh, interestingly enough, the staff is often right. As a physician, you can only be in one place at one time, but your staff have eyes and ears allowing you to be in more than one place at one time. So if three of your staff members are stating that the patient was abusive to them on multiple occasions, shouting obscenities, um, while this same patient is nothing but um, uh, but the ultimate diplomat uh, in the exam room, um, pay attention to what your staff um, are saying. I think it may actually um, save the day down the road. It, you may document more. You may decide to terminate the relationship. Um, but it's not just you. It's also, it's also your staff. Yep. Um, the other thing that I think is helpful is if there's some kind of notation uh, for staff to know, because we've had situations where the physician would never accept a patient back because of uh, something like this, where they've litigated against the physician, uh, or there's all kinds of issues about outstanding um, fees or so forth, mm -hmm. but that it's not, but the staff doesn't, is not fully aware of that. 
and they put the patient, they just scheduled the patient right back in. And now you've got a problem because the office has scheduled it, uh, scheduled the patient in. So a little bit of coordination or a system in place so a staff member knows not to uh, schedule the, the problem patient uh, should, be, should be implemented. In smaller offices, less of a problem because people know, but in large organizations, uh, they, they may just not know if scheduling is going on at remote locations. You should have a way to flag this so the person doesn't get back in with you. You know, sometimes a physician is shocked when a plaintiff uh, wants to come back to your practice after either successfully or unsuccessfully suing you. Um, well, it's not particularly common. I, I tell you, don't be shocked. Um, some patients just assume uh, a lawsuit is an insurance transaction, and these are the magic words. Hey, doc, nothing personal, nothing personal right here. Um, most doctors are appropriately livid um, about that type of interpretation, but uh, don't be shocked if the patient tries to make an appointment to come back uh, to your practice. It does happen. And speaking of some of these challenging uh, patients, um, it sounds like here the, um, you know, the patient was unreliable and it's a surprise when the, um, you know, when the plaintiff attorney uh, takes on such a case. But just remember that the plaintiff attorney is a, is a human also, and he may likely believe the patient uh, initially, but still he has an obligation to do an independent investigation to confirm the patient's story. If, if the attorney fails to corroborate and still propels a case forward or even fails to do an independent investigation, a complaint can be filed against that attorney to the state bar. So if you found the patient to be mentally unstable, unbalanced, uh, and unreliable, there is a strong chance the plaintiff attorney will actually reach that same conclusion. Um, the vast majority of attorneys do not want to head into court with an unreliable plaintiff when it could be e this plaintiff could be easily identified as a liar. Don't you think that's the case, Mike? So not I, all the time, much of the time, but not all of the time. Not, not all the time, but, but the majority of the time. And you're, you're absolutely um, right. I had a law professor that uh, once told me, make sure that uh, you don't have, that your client doesn't make you wear the clown suit. <laughs> and, um, you know, this is clearly a patient slash client that could make an attorney wear a clown suit, right? You get in the midst of this and you look like the clown by advancing their, their arguments that are just preposterous and, and silly. So hats off to this attorney for, for apologizing and, and moving on. Um, and we, we see that with, with some, some regularity. Unfortunately, in medical justice, we, we sometimes self-select for those that are not so um, ethical and uh, appropriate. Yeah, there's a so an attorney is supposed to be a zealous advocate for their client, um, which means advancing all types of arguments, but they can't advance ridiculous arguments forever. Correct? That that's uh, that's right. And really, the plaintiffs' attorneys are working on a contingent basis, which means that they don't get paid unless they collect money. So most of these attorneys don't have any real interest in advancing uh, claims that don't have much merit uh, because they won't ultimately won't get paid. Sometimes you get people that think that they're just going to litigate and shake you down through litigation. That's inappropriate. Unfortunately, it happens from time to time. And that's oftentimes where medical justice is uh, very beneficial. So the most dangerous attorneys are those who don't know what they don't know. And these are people that will advance a non-meritorious claim 
to the bitter end until they actually receive an ugly lesson that they never had a case uh, in the first place. Anyway, on that uplifting and positive, optimistic note, we're going to close today, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N-F-O news at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.